Boy, that's a weird word to say, but yeah, okay. <laughs> I guess that doesn't play too well in 2023 between an old man and a 13-year-old boy. Edit that out. <laughs> CCF in depth with your hosts Jeff Heller and George Nieves, bringing you the official podcast of the Classic Comics Forum. Classic Comics Forum is our fortress of solitude on the web, where folks get together for deeper, more personal, more knowledgeable, and more friendly conversation than you'll find in those Facebook groups. We are talking classic comics runs, creators, eras, and those obscure stories no one's ever heard of before. From Scandalous Archie covers, to Brother Power the Geek number three, to Batman hogtying the Joker at a Canadian rodeo for literary awareness. We're talking about it all at ClassicComics.org. Anyway, before we get to the fun today, and we have a lot of fun to get to today, let's quickly talk about our Patreon. Hosting podcasts ain't free, and there are a number of very easy ways that you can support us and help the CCF and the CCF in depth last for years and years and years to come. We hope you will check us out at patreon.com slash the classic comics forum, where we have lots of exciting thank yous, including access to a premium secret section of the classic comics forum that nobody else can see, as well as opportunities to join in on premium Zoom conferences with George and I to give us tips about things that you'd like to see in upcoming podcasts episodes. Once again, the Patreon can be found at patreon.com slash the Classic Comics Forum, and the Classic Comics Forum can be found at classiccomics.org. Lots and lots of ways to check us out and join on even more of the fun. But enough business talk for now. You tuned into this podcast because you want to hear about Jim Shooter. Now, full disclosure, Jim Shooter is one of the more accessible figures in comic books. If you were to turn this podcast off right now, you'd no doubt find 20 or more podcasts all claiming to have exclusive interviews with Jim Shooter. And hearing history from the man itself can be incredibly worthwhile. But while George and I discussed taking that direction, we ultimately decided what we wanted was a more robust conversation where we could discuss all sides of an issue instead of just Shooter's perspective specifically because he's such a controversial figure and such a contentious figure in comic history, we thought it was important to capture all sides of the story and look a little bit more deeply. Uh, don't worry, we've listened to every one of those podcasts and interviews. We know Jim Shooter's perspective left and right, and it will be represented here. But unlike the distinguished competition, we also know the other perspectives involved in Shooter's stories. So while it would be incredibly cool to talk to Shooter, and we might do a follow-up on that one day, there's a lot of value right now in discussing Shooter without him at the table. And I think that's what makes the CCF in depth such a unique podcast, is that we're not just two guys of the podcast. We're two guys of the podcast who have come prepared. So welcome to our non-interview, not with Jim Shooter. And to start it off, George, I've been talking the entire time. Set us up. What would you say to start off a conversation about Jim well, Shooter? I'm going to say this before, before we get into this. I'm going to say I'm an unabashed an unapologetic Jim Shooter supporter. I love his writing. I love his style. You know, he, he transformed everywhere he went. Not without a little controversy, but, I mean, we'll, we'll discuss that later. But, I mean, everything he's ever done 
I really enjoyed because it's well thought out. And, you know, he, he, he again, I, I kind of, I kind of first got introduced to him when he was doing his Avengers run. And all those, those are all great books. So I, I didn't know at the time he was actually editor in chief as well. Yeah, I guess I first discovered Jim Shooter through Valiant Comics, uh, which in my mind was the most meticulously, brilliantly planned universe ever created. Um, it had so mm-hmm. much potential before it went south for reasons beyond Shooter's control. Um, and then I sort of discovered him a second time accidentally through a comic in World's Finest that was probably about a year into his uh, writing career. It was called Superman mm-hmm. and Batman Brothers. And um, it's a story in which uh, what if... Clark Kent and Bruce Wayne were raised together by the Kents. And it's uh, surprisingly powerful, touching, and complex. I never I never heard of that story. Oh, I'll, uh, I'll definitely send it to you. What, World's Finest, what issue? World's Finest Comics number 172. And honestly, it's a great defensive shooter, mm. just in terms of uh, this guy who was telling everyone else what to do later in his career. Uh, this is a story that shows that he really knew what mm. he was talking about. It's the kind of story that should be put in textbooks for aspiring comic creators, just in terms of how to develop characters and move a plot forward and give an audience everything in one short story. I'm getting that. (laughs) Well, that's awesome. So let's approach the story of Jim Shooter chronologically, because I think it's key to understanding Shooter, uh, his strengths, his weaknesses, the overall shape of his career, that his story began as every fanboy's dream. You've got a 12-year-old who is gutsy enough to send his scripts to DC Comics, and by 13, he is getting paid to write for them and being groomed to one day be an editor himself. By the time he's ready to leave for college, he's suddenly working at Marvel, and a few short years later, he's editor-in-chief there, overseeing them during arguably their most influential era in comics and in popular culture. So before we get to the dark spots and to what went wrong, let's go back to those early days. You've got a young gym shooter who um, is in the hospital for a short while. And while he's there, they have a bunch of comic books to read because this is, you know, before cable vision and all that fun stuff that can keep you busy. Certainly no smartphones. And he's got DC and Marvel Comics there, and it's his first time ever seeing a Marvel comic book. He'd been a DC comic fan years earlier and gotten bored of it. And he is comparing the two and realizes everything Marvel's doing right that DC isn't doing um, in terms of storytelling and characterization and... He starts taking notes and diligently studying, and his plan is to go to DC with Marvel-style comics and to teach them how to do what Marvel is doing. What a mind he already had at that point, you know, to say, okay, let's see what makes the difference, even at that age. But, you know, you, you know, when he, when he submitted those stories, Mark Weisinger was the one that bought the stories and finally met him. And Mark, Mark Weisinger was the son of a you-know-what. I even I even remember listening to a podcast where his son came on and said, "Yeah, he was a terrible person." <laughs> so, it... allegedly, uh, there's a story about Mort Weisinger's funeral, where uh, nobody wanted to get up and speak um, for his funeral. Um, so finally, after looking around, no one had anything nice to say. Uh, somebody finally got up and said, "Well, he wasn't as bad as his brother." <laughs> But yeah, while on the one hand, Weisinger had been incredibly tough on Shooter, on the other hand, he was the one who gave him his shot, and Shooter, looking back in hindsight, realized Weisinger had sort of been 
grooming him in a way. Exactly. Yeah. Um, that's boy. That's a weird word to say, but yeah. Okay. <laughs> I guess that doesn't play too well in 2023 between an old man and a 13 year old boy. Heck no! I'm going to open the show with that sound bite. But yeah, you know, he was he, he was teaching him the business at that age. Right. Well, here's the important thing about that. Really, the way Shooter tells that story, and you can't blame him for seeing it this way. It almost makes him sound like a chosen one. You know, the, the unbelievable odds of a 12-year-old boy turning a script in and having mm. Weisinger choose him in spite of that, uh, not knowing that at first. Um, and I think it's entirely possible Shooter has that wrong. So 1966, Adventure Comics number 346, is where Shooter first gets started with his first published story. 1964 is when you first start seeing DC take a turn towards catering to adolescent teens. Uh, that's when you have um, Brave and the Bold 54 with the Teen Titans. That's when you start seeing Wonder Girl dominating the pages of Wonder Woman. That's when you start seeing um, characters like Speedy and characters like uh, Aqualad and <laughs> Kid Flash um, start to take the center stage mm. more. Um, in fact, I have a quote from Bob Heaney um, about his time creating the Teen Titans that says... Um, Yikes. In those days, the PR research that they had done showed, this is still the early 60s, the average reader was a 12-year-old boy living in Dayton, Ohio, who was not that sophisticated. So a lot of my stuff I wrote in the 60s was aimed at him. I share that quote because if DC's entire goal in this time period is to sell to a 12-year-old boy living in Dayton, Ohio, <laughs> and two years into that, a 12-year-old boy living in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, writes in with scripts for stories... That had to be a jackpot for them. There's no doubt that Shooter was gifted, and I'm sure showed that in those early scripts he submitted, but he was also a godsend in terms of understanding what their target audience thinks. So I think Shooter is wrong to assume that Weisinger did not know his age. I don't think Shooter pulled a fast one over on it. I think DC hired him because they were looking for that authentic team. They might have misread the audience, though, because they were writing stories down to, to kids. Well, yeah, that's exactly why Shooter becomes so important to them, is because their idea of what a 12-year-old thinks and wants is not what a 12-year-old thinks mm. and wants. So Shooter could write that credibly and breathe humanity into these characters for the first time. But uh, I think a lot of ways, as much as um, Weisinger was teaching Shooter how to be a very successful editor at DC, a lot of what he taught him also set him up for failure for his being an editor and editor-in-chief at Marvel which was an entirely different culture and wasn't used to this idea of you say jump and I say how high. In fact, I seem to recall this uh, interview with uh, Doug Mensch where he mentions uh, one time being at a company baseball game and as he's rounding second base, Roy Thomas says to him, hey, you want to do this title next week? <laughs> that was just sort of how they did business back then. So that's the sort of world that Jim Shooter finds himself thrust into uh, where he sees Marv Wolfman taking four-hour lunches, says, how do I impose order upon an orderless world? It was a lax atmosphere, but it was worse than that. There was people stealing. There was there was people just doing all kinds of stuff. You know, so he had, a, he had a lot of, you know, he had the whole world to change. And this is why when, when people say, well, he was a mean guy, this and that, hey, look, if he, you know, the nice people were letting his company run into the ground. They were losing a million dollars a year when he came along. I mean, you know, they, they said there was other things, too. They said all the late books that people, they, I guess they didn't take it seriously. I mean, but, you know, from what I understand, let's say, I'm just throwing this number out. Let's say it takes $10,000 to print a book. 
and you and you have to uh, have the, uh, the you have to schedule that with the printers. If you didn't have that book ready, you still paid the ten thousand dollars. And then the next time you did it, you're paying again twice for the for for one book. He said that was happening on a regular basis. Oh sure. Not to mention the fact that you're losing readers every time that your comic ships late as well. There were um, stories that Shooter tells that people who were supposed to be on four books at one time and couldn't generate half that. And they didn't produce the work. Yeah, and Doug Mensch tells stories of um, Marvel's traffic guy, John Verporten, um, constantly uh, losing his mind that everybody was missing deadlines left and right and telling Mensch that he was the only one who ever consistently made his deadlines. So Shooter's not exaggerating. There, there absolutely was a real issue with lateness, blown deadlines, and a general lack of, of professionalism at Marvel at the time. They said, Engelhoff, for example, he was writing three books. He was actually scheduled on three books, but he was only producing two. So they he wasn't getting paid for the third one. You have to actually turn the work in. So there came a point where Jerry Conway, this before Shooter, said, look, I'm going to take away whatever book, Captain America, whatever from you. And Engelhoff would say, hey, you're robbing me. You're, ste- you're stealing one of my books. You know, you're stealing my pay. And Conway told him, well, you're not doing it anyway, so you're not getting paid for it. Yeah, we just want you to get on time on the other two books, and that caused a lot of friction, and I think that led to him leaving. And I think here is the essential Jim Shooter is editor-in-chief quandary, which is, he's right. This couldn't continue. This was a mess. It was unprofessional. It was hurting sales and killing Marvel on so many levels and frustrating the fans. But there are ways to handle that. Shooter's way of handling it was to either fire or to essentially push these people to leave who were missing deadlines. Specifically in 1976, uh, Mike Plug, and in 1979, Steve Gerber. And there had to be another way. Those were two immense talents that the comic industry inevitably is the worst for having lost. Gerber in particular was doing so much for Marvel, there had to be a way to get in the state on deadlines but also keep him. There had to be. Well, you know, ultimately, you know, if you're in charge of something and you, you can't have one rule for one person and have different rules from everyone else. Matter of fact, the controversy with Gene Colan, I don't want to get too much into it, but there came a point where people refused to work with Gene Colan. The writers refused to work. They said, the guy's phoning it in. He, he's not drawing what we tell him to draw. And Bill Mandler walked into Shooter's office and said, look, you get all over me all the time for, for the, my errors and I try to correct them. And yet you let this guy come in and draw anything he wants and you don't say a word. It's not fair. And what can Shooter say? Yeah, you're right. You know, I have to I have to address that too. So, you know, it's, it's a tough thing. You know, you say people left, but, you know, it's a tough thing to have everybody doing whatever they want to do. Come in anytime they want to come in. Turn in any kind of crappy story or whatever. To shift from that to actually getting somebody to do quality work, you're changing a whole a whole culture, and that's tough to do. I mean, look, there, there's no doubt that Shooter was thrown into a incredibly difficult situation of having to tighten a sinking ship, um, going from no rules to tons of rules and expectations all at once was going to make him the bad guy. And yet there are issues of temperament. There are ways to be a leader, to get people to do what you need them to do without having people leave in mass. And while I've mentioned two people who left so far for blown deadline reasons, um, we have a long line of people who Marvel lost specifically citing Shooter as the reason. And I think that 
reveals a concern. There had to be another way to handle it, and maybe Shooter just wasn't the person for the job. Coming from the Mort Weisinger school of do this or die, uh, he probably wasn't equipped properly to do this. I have to disagree with you, and I don't think, I mean, there wasn't a lot of people that left because of those reasons. There was a lot of people that left because they wanted to keep doing the writer-editor uh, thing. That's and, definitely uh, Marv and, Wolfman and Roy Thomas, yes. Yeah, and um, that's what, that was all of them. They all wanted to do it. And and what happened is that it wasn't even a Jim Shooter thing. This is something that everybody wanted to get rid of. Jerry Conway wanted to get rid of it before, when he was editor-in-chief. Everybody had that you know, as a as one of the goals, to get rid of that scam, if I may. <laughs> and, and, and Jim Shooter is the one that said, well, we're not going to have that. So there's a lot of people that left because they thought, well, you know, he can't do that to me and whatever. But, you know, the people that left and went to D.C., they weren't right writer editors there. So what you leave for? Well, you've got to keep in mind, too, that D.C. implodes in 1978. And once that happens, jobs dry up fast and creators become a lot more desperate and a lot more willing to put up with things. They I, might not I mean, have or they adapted. I don't know how a lot of people unhappy. I mean, there was a lot of people that were happy. John, the Buscemas did OK. Ron Wilson liked them. Joe Rubenstein liked them. There's a lot of people that like Jim Shooter. They didn't they didn't get on his bad side because they did the work. Well, Simonson, you know, all these people, all these superstars that did stay, they just, you know, they understood. It's my job to turn into work. And it should be a, of a great quality. Well, I think at the end of the day, there are a ton of choice quotes from creators who absolutely despised working under him. And I think John Romita Sr. is a perfect example of that, in that he's someone who had no axe to grind with Shooter. Shooter did nothing specifically to him, but he was sitting back and just hating what he was seeing in terms of how Shooter was treating everybody else. His actual quote was, was that after Secret Wars... He was a different guy. Now, I'm going to say that after Secret Wars is was yes. when they were trying to sell Marvel. I think they were selling it to they were trying to sell it to New World. And that's when they were trying to cash in all their pensions yeah, and that's correct. kind of ripping off the, the creators. They they took away the a nice healthcare they had and they gave them a, a, a inferior one. So they were they, he was fighting upper management at the same time. That, the, the, that there was two things happening. He was getting it from the creators, and he was also fighting management. So I could understand somebody not being in the best mood or being short if he's arguing all the time with, with, with his bosses. And you're right about that. I mean, Marvel was positioning itself for sale. Yeah. They wanted to get all their finances in the black, make their assets as high as possible, and they were nickel and diming everything and screwing people left and right. You're absolutely right. Again, I I love I like Jim Shooter. I love his stuff. I'm not gonna say everything he ever did was right, or he talked to everybody the right the the right way every time, you know. But I remember also hearing a, a quote from uh, Joe Rubenstein saying, "Look, he's the he uh, for ultimately he's the umpire, and he gets the final say." You know, he would tell him to redraw something. He says, "Well, why do I have to redraw?" He says, "Well, because I think I'm the I'm the I'm the boss, and I think I have to have it that way." People don't like that, but ultimately your boss tells you what to do and you have to do it. It's a hard sell when you're coming in an era right after everybody was doing whatever they wanted to. But you're not wrong. I'm not going to say his delivery was perfect. I mean, he was he was groomed by, you know, there goes that word again, groomed. <laughs> he was groomed by Mort Weisinger. And what Weisinger was a terrible person. So some of that must have rubbed off on him. But that doesn't mean that what he was saying and doing was incorrect. 
It might have just been the delivery. I actually think it might have been the opposite, where the lesson Shooter learned was, do everything this guy does, but don't be mean about it. Yeah. And actually, when you look at all of his detractors and what they've said, with the exception of, I think, um, Mary Screens, um, none of them ever accuse him of being mean, just controlling and manipulative, you know, while being nice at the same time. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that can be even worse when you have somebody who seems like they're your friend and then the next second stabs you in the back. Maybe being mean would have worked better. Yeah. Well, again, I, I felt he was more positive for the creators than a negative. But, you know, there's a, a thing, too, that no creator wants to be told no. Well, I think the one thing we can't agree on is he proved it valiant later on. Um, how great he can be and how much he can accomplish when everybody in the room is listening to him. Of course, the difference there is he was working either with total newcomers or with people who couldn't get work elsewhere in the industry. And so, unlike Marvel, he wasn't walking into a situation where they're already experiencing success and independence and creative freedom. Mm. And Shooter had to walk in and tell them, sorry, it's all going to change now. I think the real problem at Marvel was that Shooter wasn't walking in at square one. He was joining a project already in motion. It takes a very different set of skills for Leader to do that. And I don't think Shooter was the right guy for that job. But they were losing money. So that ultimately, that business was going to go away. But to be clear, they weren't losing money because of the things that Shooter was trying to fix. The, the industry in general was in serious decline with, you know, DT's implosion and Warren going out of business and I think Harvey suspending publishing and Archie going to all reprints at the time. The, the entire industry was dying at the time. How did Shooter say it again? Um, we were the healthiest patient of the Terminal Award. I think it was something like that. And it's why um, when you know Shooter first showed up, he was told you're here to preside over the death of the comic book industry. So yeah. here's Shooter trying to change everything and fix everything. And yeah, maybe that did help to keep the lights on. But but was it Shooter's controversial management style that turned Marvel around? Or was it its runaway success titles um, that coincidentally began around the same time that Shooter began his tenure as editor-in-chief? You have uh, Claremont and Byrne on X-Men. Uh, where Shooter got involved with the death of Phoenix and I think made the right call. But that was a title headed for greatness with or without Shooter. And then you've got Simmonson on Thor and you've got Miller on Daredevil. And in both cases, those creators wanted those titles and Shooter basically just had to get out of their way and let them create. I'm going to have to stop you there. No, they didn't. Matter of fact, matter of fact, Jim Shooter is the one that allowed them to do those books. And, and they wanted to cancel Daredevil right underneath uh, Frank Miller. And he fought for them to keep keep it going. He acted because he taught, you know, from what I understand, in one of the interviews, he said that the finance guys would come to him and say, "Look, you got to cancel these books." Usually, it was like the the the, the say the five ones, the lowest selling titles, and one of them was Daredevil. He said, "But uh, Frank Miller had just started, and and he fought for that. He said, hold it, this kid's gonna be something special, and we're gonna we're gonna give him a chance to to." to realize, you know, his talent and, and go out of this. And and for that reason, you know, Daredevil became a big thing and Frank Miller's this big legend now that we talk about now. So it wasn't, that wasn't, uh, it wasn't secure. It wasn't set that, that, that Frank Miller was going to blow up like he did. And sometimes you need somebody to champion you and say, well, we're going to go with it a little longer. So these things weren't going to automatically happen, you know, without him. Well, I'm going to disagree with you on that one. Um, Simons didn't want to do Thor mm-hmm. from the very start. And um, Miller and Joe Duffy 
pushed for him to be put on Daredevil. So I, I didn't know this story about Shooter um, defending Daredevil, and that's great. That's that's fantastic. It's what a good editor-in-chief should do. But my original point is that Shooter is not in any way responsible for making those titles great. It wasn't his decisions and his interventions that made them successes. He got out of the way right, because and let somebody them do had to give him a chance. Anyway. And, and Walt Simonson didn't have a regular gig before Door. He wrote a couple of Star Wars books and some other, you know, minor books, but he was never a regular writer artist on anything. He gave him a, he gave him a chance. Well, I guess the fundamental question is would any other editor in chief in his position have done differently? Well, but but, you know, they could have also just kept doing what they were doing, having a book that was going nowhere, but it took a chance on it. You know, sometimes somebody has to give you a chance before you become, you know, before you become this big thing. I mean, Walt Samuelson was a decent guy, but he, he didn't, you know, he blew up after that. He became a totally different, you know, talent. You know, you mentioned Mary Screens. I, I never, I, I don't know the story behind that. Oh, so she worked with uh, Steve Gerber on Omega the Unknown, and um, her story sort of changed a bit over time, mm -hmm. but the gist of it is that uh, Shooter was constantly getting involved and, and trying to manipulate things and control things, and uh, he was deceitful and emotionally abusive, and uh, to the point that she left the comic industry entirely. And uh, later on, when uh, Marvel asked if she wanted to come back and, and finish the story, her response was, hell no. <laughs> Well, I mean, uh, yeah, okay. I, I wasn't sure that she actually did anything for Marvel. You know? Well, I mean, talk about being given a chance. Uh, that was all she was able to do before she felt that she had to leave. But, you know, I mean, there's a bunch of names that, that you gave out in the outline, and, and I'm, I'm saying, look, some of these people is just, they were told no. <laughs> and they don't like, nobody likes the word no, <laughs> you know? Well, yeah, and sometimes that's true. Tony Isabella and Ghost Rider. Shooter made the right call. Ghost Rider having his soul saved by Jesus Christ was yeah. not going to play well in yeah. a mainstream I mean, Marvel comic book. The, the, I agree with him the, on that one. The Dark Phoenix saga. I mean, who t who who told John Byrne to, to to draw in her decimating a planet? That wasn't even in the that wasn't even in the plot. Oh boy, well, just you try telling John Byrne he's wrong about anything. <laughs> but anyway, my point is not that Shooter was always wrong uh, by any stretch of the imagination. Rather, that there are different ways to handle things, and a lot of good people left who shouldn't have had well, to. Well, some people there left in the disgust, and some people left and came back. So there's that too. But was I mean, it a validation of Shooter, or was it a reflection of the DC implosion? Because I mean, everywhere you go, somebody's going to say no to you. I mean, you're not going to get what you want. So let's move this stalemate forward. Looking at everything we've covered so far, you've got a young gym shooter, age 13. He's in the right time, right place, and also has tremendous talent. Ends up becoming the youngest writer ever for DC or Marvel Comics. By the time he's in his late teens, he's moved over to Marvel as an assistant editor, and soon after is running the business. And it's his job to impose martial law upon a lawless land where anything goes. And now, George... Are you ready for me to piss you off? Because I'm really about to piss you off. Can, can you handle that? Oh, I love you, man. You, you can make me mad if you like. I love you, too. But this is, uh, <laughs> is going to be a rough one. So, um, Challenge accepted. Go. Are you familiar <laughs> with the Jim Shooter theory of the Big Bang of the Marvel Universe? <laughs> 
So this is going to sound totally wackadoodle, but hear me out on this one. Uh, it, it's from Doug Mensch, and nobody else no, will confirm this. this ever happened. But Mensch is adamant about. But but you're going to believe him anyway, I guess. Go ahead, go. <laughs> and I think there's actually quite a bit of evidence to support some mm-hmm. aspects of what he's talking about here. So um. So here's Doug Mensch's account of what happened, and this is from an interview he did a while back with Comic Foundry, where he says, quote, what he was trying to do was what he called the Jim Shooter theory of the Big Bang of the Marvel Universe. Now, what this was, he was going to kill off every major Marvel character. I swear this is true, but without killing them off. In other words, he was going to kill off Steve Rogers, but not Captain America. And then a new guy, like an investment banker, would be the new Captain America. He was going to kill off Peter Parker and someone else would be Spider-Man. Mm-hmm. I said, this is lunacy. Stan Lee would never let this happen. This is insane. But he was doing it. He got on the phone with me and said, look, this is happening and it's starting with you. I said, what do you mean? Mm-hmm. And he said, next issue of Master Kung Fu, I want Shang-Chi dead. And when I mean dead, I want to see his blood. I want no way that Shang-Chi would ever be able to come back. <laughs> I said, no, why would you do that? If you don't like Master of Kung Fu, kill the book. Don't kill the character. Because these things have a way of changing over time, and in five years you might want to revive the character of the book, etc. No, I don't want to kill the book. I want to kill the character. <laughs> kill Shang-Chi and make a new master of Kung Fu like a ninja. I said, Mr. Shooter, perhaps you're not aware. Ninjas are Japanese. Kung Fu is Chinese. <laughs> but anyway, he said, if you don't do it, I'll get someone that will. And Moon Knight is next. And I was writing Thor at the time, and then Don Blake goes and the new guy finds the hammer. End quote. This is Mench's explanation for why he ends up leaving Marvel. And nobody will back up this story. Nobody who worked at Marvel at the time will in any way verify it, which incenses Mench and makes him sound like a wackadoodle. But did you want to say something before I get into why I believe in this? (laughs) Well, I'm going to I'm going to use a Samuel Jackson quote and say, allow me to retort. (laughs) Okay, what have you got? First of all. I'm not mad. Second of all, I believe the story. You know why I believe the story? Because Jim Shooter himself said that when they were going to, to do the new universe, his first, his first pitch was to kill everybody off and start the universe new. <laughs> and he said during that meeting, he got shot down like crazy. Of course, because they're the number one, you know, they were printing money at that point. So then the next thing he came up with is the new universe. Now, the second reason I believe it is because he said that Doug Mench, Doug Mench was writing Master of Kung Fu, and it was one of the, the, I think, one of the three lowest selling comic books. And he was getting orders from above to cancel the book. So he said to Mench, well, they're going to cancel the book. So I want you to do something brand new. I don't know if he said kill off Shang-Chi. Is possible? It sounds, it sounds like I heard that somewhere too. So it's possible. But he, what he was saying is, look, you got a book that you're doing. It's not selling. They're going to cancel it. So why don't you try to do something new to yeah. revive the book and actually get some sales on it? But Doug Mench... You know, he was a stubborn guy. He just said, well, no, it's perfect the way it is. How could you say it's perfect the way it is if it's going to get canceled? No, I've not heard that. So you would have no book. So that part, I believe. But Doug Doug Bench hated Jim Shooter. So, I mean. Well, you'll get no argument from me on that one. I mean, even as a huge fan of Doug Mench, I I can tell you, 
I, I think I probably know the man better than anyone. I've spent more time studying him, and a recurring theme in Mensch's life is that he cannot stand authority <laughs> figures. I would I would have never guessed that. When somebody says, listen, I'm in charge, so you must do X, you can be sure Mensch is going to do Y and possibly punch that guy in the face. It's a little hard for me because I, you know, I love Shooter too. Uh, Shooter is probably my, I think my third favorite writer of all time, and Mensch is my first. So every time I look through this part of Marvel history, it's a bit like mommy and daddy fighting and me having to choose between the two. Uh, but yeah, I, I think from day one they were destined to well, hate each other because this of becomes a this becomes a situation where you have to separate. So, you know, you 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 have the right to separate the talent from the personality. Well, yeah. Look, I think the conversation with Mensch probably went along the same lines that you described. I think Mensch may have exaggerated some things unintentionally, but I think that because sales were low, Shooter was pushing for Shang-Chi to die and be replaced. And the reason why I'm pushing this so much and emphasizing it so much is I think it's the beginning of a really important trend under Shooter's watch that exposes both his brilliance and his need to micromanage. Um, so if you consider the conversation took place in 1983, and one of the things Shooter allegedly mentions is that someone else should pick up Thor's hammer and replace him. Well, look at what happened in 1983 in Walt Simonson's run right from the start. In the very, very first story, Simonson is setting up Beta Ray Bill to replace mm -hmm. Thor. He ultimately yep. changes his mind, but you can see at first that Beta Ray Bill is being set up as a major protagonist until suddenly and arbitrarily he and Sif go off somewhere else for issue upon issue to help uh, an alien race. But it really looked like that's what the original intention was. And mm -hmm. then also in 1983, at the same time, you have James Rhodes getting into the Iron Man costume. In 1984, suddenly, you have Julia Carpenter become Spider-Woman. You have um, Vindicator die, and Heather McNeil Hudson takes his place in the same costume, leading Alpha Flight. In 1985, She-Hulk replaces the thing on the Fantastic Four, and Magneto becomes the leader of the X-Men. All these things indicate a pattern, a, a very... It really looks to me not like Shooter was forcing everybody to do this or else they were going to get fired, but rather that he was probably heavy-handedly suggesting this is the way you boost sales, while also pushing this idea of starting everything back at square one under his tutelage and vision, creating his Marvel Yeah, universe. but you have to understand, even those changes are temporary. Everybody knows that. I mean, they weren't, they weren't going to... They weren't permanently going to replace Thor. They weren't going to permanently replace Iron Man. This, this is a you know a plot device that's used over and over again with comic books, just like killing somebody. They're not going to stay dead. But here's where I'm going with this. I, I think Shooter had a larger vision in mind because the trend continues up through 1986, and that's where it gets really bad. Um, so in 1985 is when you have um, Spider-Man's alien costume. And that was not Jim Shooter's idea. But I, I think once he saw where the sales were and the attention it got, he, he sort of leaned into it. And then as a result, sort of the plan changes a bit. After this, James Rhodes stops being Iron Man and Tony Stark returns to the armor. And that's when Shooter realizes that he can boost sales and generate attention, not by changing who Iron Man is, but just by changing the way Iron Man looks. We get the Silver Centurion, who is just Tony Stark in a different looking costume. Mm -hmm. And... Here's where my theory gets really wackadoodle crazy. Do you remember the Marvel? <laughs> no, hold on, let me let me put my tinfoil hat on. Good. Oh, that's cool. We want you to look good for the aliens that are listening. But uh, okay, so here's the thing. Do you remember the Marvel 25th anniversary covers? Yep. So my theory is that Jim Shooter was working on a sort of vanity project. 
I think he wanted for Marvel's 25th anniversary for every one of those covers to reflect a character who had been changed and reshaped mm-hmm. by his editorial policies. And most of them ended up being that. But the real reason I believe this is because in 1986, there were four legacy character covers that did not end up getting changed for the 25th anniversary. One was Thor, because he wasn't going to tell Simonson what to do. Another was Daredevil, because he wasn't going to tell Frank Miller what to do. But the other two are the interesting ones, and those were Incredible Hulk and Captain America. Coincidentally, it's right before the 25th anniversary that Shooter gets into a huge fight with John Byrne, and Byrne ends up leaving the Incredible Hulk. And the replacement team ends up introducing the Grey Hulk exactly one issue before the 25th anniversary cover. At almost the same time, Roger Stern gets unceremoniously booted from the Avengers and Captain America by Mark Gruenwald, not Jim Shooter, but Gruenwald is working on behalf of Shooter. And in the exact same issue that has the 25th anniversary cover of Captain America, John Walker is introduced. And of course, he'll go on to replace Captain America very shortly after. Now, these changes didn't happen by deadline, so those two anniversary covers still show a Green Hulk in the original Captain America, but the timing is pretty hard to ignore. And of course, it's around the same time that Shooter ends up coming up with the idea for the new universe, where he intends to create a new Marvel Universe, Jim Shooter's Marvel Universe, from square one. You'd brought up earlier on the fact that everything got worse around the time of Secret Wars, um, because there were all these economic pressures with the company positioning itself for sale. But I think around the exact same time, you also have Shooter very much aware that Marvel has a big anniversary coming up, very much aware of the power that he wields, and as a result, getting pretty vain and wanting to make himself the next Stan Lee. This is the point where they're giving him a float in the Macy's Day Parade. And sure, he just saved Marvel from bankruptcy and put it in the green. Pat yourself on the back, give yourself full credit for that. And as a result, Shooter is, I suspect, experiencing a massive ego inflation and wanting to create his own legacy at Marvel, and as a result, coming down harder on the talent, pushing people harder, and breeding more resentment as a result. Mm, well, that's a theory. <laughs> I want to I want to step back a second. You said something about he didn't create the black uniform. I understand they bought that they bought that from a fan. A fan came up with a black uniform concept. And they bought that, so it's just a concept. Oh, you should have a black uniform. But he, but Jim Shooter wrote Secret Wars. Yes. And he's the one that created the whole symbiote, all that. Jim Shooter wrote that. So he did create the actual black uniform. Well, no. So the actual backstory about the symbiote and all of that actually came from um, Tom DeFalco and um, Ron Friends. And... Actually, in the beginning, Shooter really wasn't sure about it. When the news leaked out that they were going to change Spider-Man's costume and people started going crazy, Shooter went to DeFalco and said, I want this thing turned around and, and undone in an issue. And DeFalco said, well, we can't do that. Well, when it was introduced in a regular book, people, you know, they do what fans always do. They start complaining. <laughs> and then, and then, well, sure. And when Jim Shooter saw where the money was afterwards, he changed his tune. Yeah, because they got scared, you know. And but you know, it turned out to be this big, you know, it was selling out everywhere. And then you know, it came to nothing. He kept the kept it for a while. But he did. I'm just saying, you're never going to find an interview where Shooter says, "Yes, that was my idea, and I stand by it." You know, ultimately he liked it. Ultimately, it benefited him, and he used it to his advantage. But he was not in favor of it in the beginning. Yeah, I mean, look, you know. 
you create something, you don't know how it's going to take off or how popular it's going to be. You know, you, you know, that, no one knows where it's going. But as far as the secret wars, look, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna say something, and I, you know, I know if, uh, I've been accused of having a lot of unconventional opinions, but I thought Secret Wars was a great book. It was a great read, and I think a lot of the characters did what they did. You know, some people say, "Oh, the X Men would never do that," and how come they wrote this person that way? I'm like, look, they're put, they're put in a, they're put in a situation where they're like fighting for their survival in a planet. And people are going to react different ways. But I thought it was a great book. And, uh, you know, Dr. Doom, you know, he's a bad guy, man. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to agree with you on this one, actually. Um, I have not read Secret War since I was a kid because I'm really afraid it won't hold up. But I read it when I was, I think, 10 years old. And I loved it so much because it felt exactly like the stories I'd been having with my own action figures. You know, it was huge on imagination and enormous in scale and entertaining every single panel. And I mean, my gosh, what Dr. Doom did to Galactus, it's, I, I can see if you were a fan of Marvel comics at the time, how disruptive this would have seemed. And I'm sure a lot of the characters actions were not entirely consistent with how they were being treated in their own titles. Uh, and you know, this is a very Jim Shooter thing to do. It was huge on ideas and, and so entertaining. But it didn't play well with others. It wasn't yeah. respectful to what other creators were doing with their characters. And he forced other creators to tie into it, even if they didn't want to. Uh, even if it just meant getting their character reluctantly to Central Park. Well, well, but you know something? That the original Secret War didn't tie into anything. Well, they, 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 went into, they went into the Central Park and they came right out. Like a week later. They, 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 there's no buy Fantastic Four to find out what happened. That's, that was the second one where they tied it into everything. Well, sure, Secret Wars 2 is more disruptive, but Shooter did require of all the major titles that there be some significant change that would require readers to read Secret Wars to find out how it happened. Uh, a couple of those being She-Hulk joining the Fantastic Four, Spider-Man in the alien costume. Yeah, but you have, you read the miniseries to find out what happened, but he keeps going on with his regular adventures in his own book. It's not like, you know, you're interrupting a Spider-Man story to throw a crossover in. It's just like, this happened in between. Now you're going to have to find out what it actually happened in between these two So issues. taking this back to the Jim Shooter theory of the Big Bang of the Marvel unit, that is such a tongue tire. <laughs> there you go with the tin hat again. Holy mackerel. I cannot believe I can tell that from memory. But anyway, we're back to that whole idea of big change making sales. And Jim Shooter saying to everyone, listen, you need to make a big change so everybody will come and read my story. So you're right that Secret Wars 2 is more disruptive. It was but... terrible. Uh, it was also terrible. <laughs> Don't forget that part. But... What do you mean? That disco look was iconic. <laughs> you know, I, I find it I find it kind of cute saying that you're saying that you read Secret Wars when you were 10 because, I mean, it was a toy line. I mean, they, they, you know, it was, it was, it was written for kids. It was guilty pleasure reading. It was it guilty was pleasure reading. Sometimes you have to love a comic book that's like that. It's just slam bam action, you know? I mean, it, I remember loving, loving a Fantastic Four uh, issue number 73, the, the, the Fantastic Four fight Thor, Spider-Man and Daredevil. It amounted to being nothing but a slugfest, but I'm like, I still like it, you know? Right. <laughs> the, the old misunderstanding, oh, you know, you're a bad guy, let's fight, you know? I mean, it was a nothing issue, but I liked it. So sometimes you got to like just uh, mindless entertainment. It's okay. Yeah, but it also set a precedent that Secret Wars 2 took far further. 
which was that everything needs to connect to my vision. You know, buy Daredevil to see what happens now, you know. So now you're being forced and to buy was a books. Crap story that wasn't worth yeah. it. Yeah, and so that's what I mean. Like all the crossovers became that. That you can't you can't just read the, the event by itself. You have to buy all the connected issues that run throughout the whole uh, uh, comic line. But then, of course, he did the same thing in Valiant, and it worked there when he did Unity. You know, Valiant. You know, I remember when Valiant came out. People, I was going to comic shows, and people were saying, "This feels like." being on the ground floor of when Marvel Comics started. That's how excited people were about Valiant. And that's exactly what Shooter had been trying to do at Marvel. The difference now is he was starting from scratch instead of with a pre-established company. Yeah, and, and it, was, it was awesome. And some of those Valiant titles are direct descendants of New Universe titles. Mm -hmm. Like Harbinger is DP7. You can't miss it if you read both. Yeah. Yeah, you know. That was that, that was a great uh But that's probably a podcast for another day. Yeah, you know, we'll be here all night. <laughs> <laughs> you know, before I leave the realm of uh, Secret Wars, I do want to touch upon the fact that Shooter's detractors at Marvel claim that while he was writing Secret Wars, he basically violated every rule that he held them accountable for. He was yeah. his own editor, he was blowing deadlines left and right. And this is essentially the point where he becomes a huge hypocrite in the eyes of many of the people working under him. I've heard that. So, I mean, it just goes to show that a brilliant writer can be late on their deadlines sometimes, right? All right. How about New Universe? Do you want to go there? New Universe. Well, I'm going to say that from what, from what he says, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a point where people like to make fun of him and say, ah, I love Universe. Ah, you failed, blah, blah, blah. But from what I understand, they give him like a, you know, a quarter of a million dollars as a budget and like, a week later, they told him, oh, you know, don't spend any more money. Just do it on staff. So it was going to fail. You know, you know, they, they, they kind of pulled the rug out from under him, but he gets the blame. You know, again, nobody cares about what Jim Galter's doing. They only care about what Jim Shooter's doing. So everybody has a boss. And that's where you see the people who did support Shooter, who were willing to work on the universe, even though it put targets on their back with their colleagues. And they weren't paid much, if anything, for doing it. But they did it out of loyalty to Shooter because they believed in the vision. Yeah. I mean, and that and that proves that he had friends. Not everybody yeah. hated him. Oh, that's true. You know, they, they said Romina Jr. volunteered to do a, a, a star brand. And Jim Shooter said, are you out of your mind? <laughs> he said, you out of your mind. What are you doing? And that's where I've really got to wonder what his dad had to say about that. <laughs> hey, look, man. He had plenty of supporters, but, nobody, but people only want to talk about Doug Manchin, you know, whatever. The people that didn't like them. Look, there's a lot that's great about the new universe. There were a lot of great properties and stories and ideas. And the overall concept, the white event, um, which he sort of, you know, used the same idea later on when he did Defiance. Um, he wanted to make an explanation for why there were superpowers in the universe. He created a whole backstory for that, a story for the universe itself that was such a cool idea. So there just weren't random people flying around with superpowers for no apparent reason. I respected that. Starting with Valiant, he, he kind of gave everybody, you know, more relatable superpowers, if, if, if that's a thing. You know, like when people fly, in other words, in Harbinger, people would fly, but they would comment on how, how, how annoying it was to hit a wind hitting their ears. Yes. So things that you and I were like, you know, we're having a geek fest. We talk about, hey, I wonder how he does this. I wonder how people do that. Right. I mean, they actually address some it of it. It felt you know. more real and a lot more grounded. 
some of the concepts were fantastic. I mean, I will not read Kickers Inc. You couldn't pay me to do that. And um, <laughs> I, I avoid Spitfire and the Troubleshooters as well. But some of the other ones were really great. You know, you universe, I, I mostly avoided. So I could, I couldn't, you could, you could, you couldn't get any answers out of me for this because I, <laughs> I don't even know most of the titles you're talking about. I know Starbrand. That's it. Well, at the very least, read DP7. Everybody should read DP7. It's a really good series. Hmm. Okay, maybe I will. Especially if you like Harbinger. It's essentially the same thing. Harbinger was a fun book. That I, rem- I remember catching up and getting a, the uh, the trade paperback that came with the Harbinger Zero. <laughs> hey, did did uh, Jim Shooter invent Zero issues? Was he the one that invented that? You know, I was debating whether or not we should address that in this episode. Um if we ever do a follow-up Valiant episode, we absolutely have to talk about Shooter's marketing genius while he was running that company. Yeah. Uh, yeah, he did create the number zero issue, and he also created the idea of redeeming coupons for um, extra issues you couldn't get otherwise. And yep. he, he knew what he was had doing. the interlocking covers that all worked together. Or uh, Solar Number 10 had the all-black cover. Yeah, and, I mean, they, I think they, they had a deal with, uh, when, he, when he did the fight, they had a deal for cards that become a, like a comic. just saw those in the shop last week. You, ha- you have to buy this, uh, like a, a loose leaf and you put it in and it comes a whole story or whatever. I mean, he, he had a lot of ideas. It kind of tells you that, you know, maybe he was just doing the, the, the management work in Marvel, but he still had a lot of, you know, he still had a lot in the tank. I think he was full of great ideas. I also think he had a legitimately hard time working with other people. And I think there were times that his ambition exceeded his skill set. And yet, look at the loyalty that was exhibited by all the people that followed him to Valiant and then followed him to Defiant and then went to Broadway Comics for him. Well, some of them still had him pleasant. So if he was such a terrible guy, why would he engender that type of loyalty? Well, I think it was Engelhardt who... Was it Engelhardt who went with him to... Um, Engelhart, he did Shadow Man for a while. Yeah, Engelhart went there to do uh, Shadow Man and Exo because Engelhart needed a job. And Steve Ditko went there because Steve Ditko needed a job. And um, Janet Jackson yeah. is one of the few who um, stands by Shooter no matter what and followed him everywhere. But like Barry Windsor Smith, there was certainly no loyalty there. He totally screwed him over. Well, you know, I mean, the thing with Barry Windsor Smith, the thing he, he kind of mentioned about Valiant is that a lot, he got a lot of people that were blackballed that couldn't get any work. Well, yeah. And when you're a black sheep of the comic you know. industry and you need talent, where are you going to look? Other black sheep. I give Shooter tremendous respect for how good he was at recruiting those people. You know, there's a guy who could be down in his luck and have no resources whatsoever and still be positioning himself to buy Marvel Comics. The guy yep. just dreamed big and never gave up. He was always recognized as the idea man. Matter of fact, when, when Valley was sold, actually stolen from him, but... They were going to be sold to some other company, and they stopped the sale. They said because the idea guy's gone. Doesn't help him much because he still got thrown out. But you know, at least <laughs> you know. And look, anywhere you go, if you're that creative, you're going to be all right. And I think all, all the places he went, I really liked. You know, I tell you, I really lament the fact that Broadway Comics didn't do more. That was a great like company and great stories, great stories. I got, I, I think I got most of them. But it, it, he claims that it was during the time when comics were imploding, you know, when the market crashed or whatever, and that was it. You know, I'd like to see an alternate reality where Jim Shooter never went to work for DC and instead waited a few years and got accepted at Marvel, where he could learn to work in a more unrestricted creative environment 
learn how to work with people better mm-hmm. and learn how to bring his brilliant ideas to fruition without stepping on other people's toes, <laughs> without Weisinger's influence. I think he could have done so much more. I think early success that inflated his ego and Weisinger's influence as a domineering editor, both were influences that did him great injustices in the long run. You know what? You know, I'm going to give you my tinfoil theory now. I think I think the fact that Jim Shooter was six foot seven created trouble too, because because he was you know this is an imposing figure, and when he says no to you, it's not just a guy saying no to you; it's a six foot seven guy saying no to you. So if if, if I'm sure people got more intimidated by that than maybe what he was actually saying, and they thought they considered him meaner or whatever, you know. I'm going to agree with you on that one. Except I don't think it was an imposing energy he had. I think it was an awkward energy. If you look at a commonality amongst a lot of interviews uh, with people describing Shooter, perhaps most unforgivingly, Rick Marshall, um, mm-hmm. they describe him as being awkward and dorky. And I mm-hmm. think it's well. a difficult situation when you're already trying to impose law on a lawless land and you are younger than many of the creators you're talking to, and you're awkwardly tall, and you're uncool, and you're trying to be the nice guy. And without some serious people skills, you're going to get walked over until you end up asserting your authority, probably too strongly in an overreaction. I think in a lot of ways, a lot of the antagonism between Shooter and the staff might have been exacerbated by his awkward height. We won't ever know, but that, you know, now I can take my tinfoil hat off. Well, damn it, man. Now the aliens have got you. <laughs> I miss him, man. That's my final thought. I miss him. He should do comics. Too bad he's blackballed everywhere. Because he, he actually did work for uh, DC in the 2000s, and nobody wanted him there. And he kind of got sabotaged. But that's not what happened with Dark Horse, right? No, he actually he said that they were giving him subpar talent to work with, and he was writing stories, and they and people weren't, weren't, weren't actually doing the story. And, uh, you know, again, there's a lot of companies that want to hire him, but they didn't want a mutiny, you know? So, I mean, all these years later, too. So I want to bring this thing to a close by reading four separate quotes about Shooter that I think tell a story when you put them together. Why do I think they're going to be negative? But anyway, go ahead. (laughs) No, I, I, I think we've tried really hard in this podcast to present a very balanced view of Shooter, both the good and the bad. My intentions to sort of encapsulate all that here. Yeah, I think you did. I think you have. I'm just messing with you. The aliens are listening, George, so watch what you say. <laughs> so, four quotes to summarize Shooter's career. And the first one's a positive one. This comes from Chris Claremont, and he says, Shooter wasn't the ogre that was thought. Things that were better at Marvel were better because of him. You know, it's important that quote is coming from somebody who was high profile, who didn't need Shooter to be successful, Uh, somebody who also had confrontation with Shooter. They had massive disagreements that are well documented. And yet Claremont saw Shooter as somebody who did great things for creators. You know, he saw the fact that Shooter fought for them to get better compensation and fought for them to be treated better and tried to shield them as much as possible from a company that was nickel and diming everything because they were positioning themselves for sale. it's also important that there are, you know, stories that came about of Shooter would let people come into the office late when they got caught up on their deadlines as a reward. I think it's very true to say that if you were willing to play Shooter's game, if you did the things he asked of you and respected his authority, he treated you well as a result of that. Yep. The second quote comes from Roy Thomas, and it's an own one, um, where he says, 
When Jim Shooter took over, for better or worse, he decided to rein things in. He wanted stories told the way he wanted them told. It's not a matter of whether Jim Shooter was right or wrong, it's a matter of a different approach. He was editor-in-chief and had a right to impose what he wanted to. I thought it was kind of dumb, but I don't think Jim was dumb. I think the approach was wrong, and I don't really think it helped anything. And that's going to be up for debate forever, but it highlights the huge contrast in leadership between Jim Shooter and the leaders who came before him. He came in and tried to tighten up ship, and that will forever be his legacy, both good and bad, at Marvel Comics. And then the last two come from the people who knew Jim Shooter best, the ones who were in the room with him while it was all happening, and that's Tom DeFalco and Ricky Marshall. DeFalco says, Jim Shooter did a lot of good for the creative people and a lot of good for the industry. He did have his issues. He was not a great people person when it came to creative people, but he really is a creative person. I think, like many creative people, you think that because you can do certain things well, you can do other things well. DeFalco then goes on to talk about Shooter wanting to be publisher of Marvel, and how that essentially created enemies of the people above him while distracting him from the things that mattered below him, mm. and sort of alienated him on all sides. This last quote comes from Rick Marshall, who worked very closely with Shooter, and he says, The business office was always nice to me because I had these connections. Shooter was always jealous. Why are you going to these lunches with European publishers, and why don't they ask me? I was dying to say, because you're a thing from the Adams family. You're a dork, and you don't understand where Europe is in a map. It's pretty mean, especially since Shooter never did anything to Rick Marshall. But it also highlights, once again, Shooter's ambition, um, wanting to be in the room with the big boys. Um, in a lot of ways, I think he was kind of like Icarus of, uh, of Greek mythology, flying too high to the point that it was un his undoing. And if he hadn't been gunning for a top position, then the people up above him wouldn't have feared and resented him, and he might have been able to stick around a lot longer as a result. Well, that's an interpretation that I've never heard from anybody else, so okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're welcome. That's what we do here at CCF in depth, right? <laughs> George, I had a lot of fun today. I hope you did too. I had a blast, man. And I hope we generated some fun, knowledgeable content today. So if you are out there and you hate what you heard, feel free to uh, pop on in at the Classic Comics Forum, where you can post comments, participate in conversations about today's episode, and generally share the good, the bad, the ugly, and your tinfoil hat theories. Yes, sir. The CCF In-Depth theme is written and produced by Paul King. Special thanks to our newest Patreon supporter, Bill Sinclair, a.k.a. The White Guardian. A very special thanks to Scott Harris King, the creator of the original Classic Comics Forum podcast. CCF In-Depth is produced in partnership with the Classic Comics Forum. Visit us on the web at classiccomics.org or find us on Facebook.
classiccomics.org.